Day Crossings podcast community. This teaching is called Angels, Animals, and Auto Mechanics, and is the fifth teaching in our First Corinthians series. It was taught by Molly Conaway on October 16th, 2022. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Um, for about 12 years now, I have taken my car uh, to a place called Fisher Tire on North Broadway. Are there any other Fisher Tire people? Yeah, okay, all right, all right. Um, this is not an advertisement. Crossings didn't receive any money from Fisher Tire for this. This is just where I take my car <laughs> to get oil changes, new tires if something is broken. I like the location. I can walk to this place. Um, it's been there for about 70 years. They're just good people. Uh, they do good work. Um, yeah, the Fisher Tire people are in here. All right, I trust them. They're well-respected in the neighborhood. For those of you that know that this teaching in 1 Corinthians 6 eventually gets to topics like sex and sexuality, you're really nervous about why I'm talking about auto mechanics right now. Um, but here's, here's what would be really devastating to me. Is if I was out in West Knox at like Sam's Club or something, uh, some kind of big box auto repair shop, and I saw Ray Fisher or Bobby Fisher from Fisher Tire out there having their car worked on by a Sam's Club employee that was like in training, okay? A, it would be very confusing as to why they were doing this, and B, it would make me question whether or not they actually care about the skill required to do the work, right? All right, today's text has something to do with this. As Caleb said, we're in the middle of this 15-week uh, study of 1 Corinthians. We're in week five. Uh, this, is, this book is actually a letter. It's one of several letters a man named Paul wrote to the early church in Corinth, uh, a church that was trying to figure out what it meant to be Jesus' people under the empire of Rome, uh, when there was very little example of how to do that. The Jesus followers in Corinth had become very divided over all sorts of issues. And the Jesus followers, the church in Corinth, were doing things individually and communally that were not aligned with the postures and priorities of Christ, of Jesus. So, so Paul is calling them on these things uh, because Paul cared a lot about the unity of the church. Uh, Paul also cared a lot about people understanding what it means to live in Christ, to live consistent with the ways of Christ. So Paul is like randomly answering some of their questions about what they should do with this issue or that issue. Last week, Caleb compared it to something like the Dear Abby section of the newspaper. And it's thought that what Caleb taught last week in chapter five and what we're in today, chapter six, are a unit. Okay, so last week, was about this way this church in Corinth uh, refused to do anything about the man in the church who was sleeping with his stepmother. Uh, it was about what the man was doing, but it was also about the church not doing the work, not stepping in to make things right. Uh, it's possible that the church in Corinth wasn't doing anything because the man in question was one of prominent standing, perhaps a donor of the church. We don't know. But, but if that situation is true, it would be consistent with what's happening here in chapter 6. Okay, 1 Corinthians 6 says this. When any of you has a grievance against another, do you dare take it to court before the unrighteous instead of taking it before the saints? Do you not know the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, 
Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels, to say nothing of ordinary matters? Um, this judging angels thing is kind of like weird theology. It's not weird if you look at Daniel 7. We don't have time to get into that, but that's where this phrase comes from. But apparently, people in the church are taking each other to the public Roman courts uh, over ordinary, trivial matters. I mean, <laughs> it's no wonder that there was division within the group. I'm not sure suing people over trivial matters is the best way to build community. But Paul's like, can't you take care of these things amongst yourselves? Uh, amongst the saints, like these are to be the saints. These are God's people to live holy and separate lives different from the rest of the crazy world. N.T. Wright says this, the Christian community in any given place is called to be modeling the genuine human existence. It isn't going to, if, if it isn't going to be modeling the genuine human existence, what is it there for? What is it? And part of that genuine human existence is justice, God's justice, the true justice by which the world will one day be finally put to rights. So Paul's saying, you of all people should be able to sort through what is right here. He keeps going. He says, if you have ordinary cases then, do you appoint as judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to decide between brothers and sisters? Instead, brothers and sisters go to court against one another, and this before the unbelievers. In fact, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud and brothers and sisters at that. Paul's problem is that the church is failing to act as a community. They're failing to take responsibility for one another. They're failing to enact justice to protect the weaker members of the group. And instead, they're letting the prominent players and powers of the outside world manage what justice looks like inside a community who, because of Christ, is supposed to enact things like justice differently. Remember, this is about ordinary, trivial matters, like property and loans. This is not a blanket answer to the popular question about whether or not Christians should take other Christians to court. This does not make a case supporting the cover-up or ignorance of abusive situations in the church because, you know, you should just forgive them and it'd make the church look bad if this went to court. This is like, don't be a jerk about petty things. You look silly. And also, you should have better standards of judgment. What seems to be happening consistently in this letter, and this is important, is this problem that how far the Corinthians, how far this church, who are now free in Christ, seem to be taking this idea of freedom. They seem to be getting carried away with their freedom at the expense of others in the community. It's the sentiment of, I mean, I have the freedom and I'm gonna get what's rightfully mine here without consideration of what it does to everyone else. And this wasn't okay with Paul. He addresses it in chapter five with the man sleeping with his stepmother. He addresses it here in chapter six with the ways they're trying to win these court cases. Paul's saying, there are no winners. The whole church has already lost. He actually tells them in verses seven and eight that it would be better 
to suffer the economic loss in these court cases than to seek legal restitution. It is better to be wronged than to do wrong, is what he says. Uh, this seems so outrageous in American Christianity today, doesn't it? To tell people, stop worrying about your rights. It's better to be wronged than to be the one doing wrong to others. But, but this is exactly the foolishness of Christ, isn't it? This is what the weakness of God looks like, this idea that has been coming through over and over in this study. I mean, is Jesus not the prime example of what it means to be wronged rather than do wrong? Verse nine, do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then Paul adds to this list of wrongdoers. And I, and I wanna pause with this, they will not inherit the kingdom of God stuff because it's much more deep and meaningful than how it sounds and how it's been interpreted to us over the years. Caleb touched on this last week. This is not like wrong, bad people go to hell, good, uh, right people go to heaven, that's it. Again, it's so much deeper and more meaningful than that. There's, there's this fancy religious theological word called eschatology. If you look it up online, it's mostly gonna talk about things like death and judgment, like final destination stuff. It's also talking about the way faith should impact how we live now. That because of Christ, death and judgment have been taken care of. It's the way God through Christ has come to restore the world now and also in the future. This kingdom of God is both now and not yet, which means this is not to be like a transactional thing that we check the boxes and live however we want to live. That seems to be what the Corinthians were doing. And while we can think about and obsess over what happens when we die in this age to come, as it's often said, so much about faith is about what happens now in this age. We do justice now because we believe in justice in the future. We are love and we are kind and we are loyal now because we believe that's what is to come. We walk humbly now, not because we're scared of what's going to happen to us if we don't, but because the kingdom of God, the ways of Jesus, and the way we act out and demonstrate these things is the way God is putting the world back together. That is the way God is restoring all things, both for this age and in the age to come. And Paul says, you have all that you need to take care of these issues amongst yourselves. Because you've been baptized in the Spirit, you have the way of Christ in you. There's, there's a different way of being human in the world. Stop going to the employees at Sam's Club to deal with your car. Like, you are Fisher Tire. I should definitely get a free oil change or something for all this. So the Corinthians are lacking judgment. Their inability to enact justice within their own community, this excessive freedom, this wrongdoing to others, it's costing them personally and it's costing the community. And this applies to the next verses in 1 Corinthians 6. And I, I tried to come up with like a creative flowery way to enter into these verses we're about to read together, um, but I didn't. <laughs> so I'm just gonna be straight up. The next two verses, we're about to read, almost need to come with their own like trigger warning because of the ways they have been used explicitly 
at minimum to exclude people, and at most abuse people. And if you haven't been here before, you know that we as a community enter into scripture intensely for a long period of time. We don't just pull out hot topics like sex and money and dating and marriage <laughs> that we do a three-week series on every year. Enough damage has been done by throwing these topics around and trying to reframe them in hip, cool ways. But we've said that we will talk about such topics if the text takes us there. And today the text takes us there, which makes me revisit the question of can we quit this study of 1 Corinthians? Still no. <laughs> Still no. We can't. We can't. And we can't avoid passages like this. If we avoid everything that makes us uncomfortable, there is no chance to mature. There is no chance to grow. And we must recognize that passages of scripture like this have done more than just make people uncomfortable. They have been used, again, explicitly to tell people they are not welcome, that they are not worth it, or it's too late, or that the gospel, the good news, the love of God is not for them. And this is not what this is about. And that is not okay. Richard B. Hayes, a scholar, a commentator on this, says that 1 Corinthians 9 through 11 has provided the launching pad for countless moralistic sermons that decry the types of sinners listed here. In fact, however, the preacher who zeroes in on Paul's vice list has placed the homiletical, so the, the preaching or teaching accent, emphatically in the wrong spot. Hayes says the emphasis here is Paul's call to the Corinthian church to act as a community. He uses this letter to criticize the way they are using outside, often unjust systems as an instrument of justice within the community. And the point is that they have been baptized and taken on an identity of Christ and therefore they are to live differently in the world. Um, I shouldn't have knots in my stomach when I read this text, a sacred and inspired holy work, but I do because I've seen what these verses do to people. Lazy, reckless theology and interpretation destroys people and communities. And I'm not saying that I have it right. I'm not saying that we have it right. The point is not for us to be a homogenous group of people that are certain about certain things for all people in all time. We hope to ask good questions. And we hope to allow for generous space for us to disagree. And we hope that at the end of it, we can all come to the table as we all find our way back to God. All right. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. I'm going to let you read this to yourself. Um, my guess is that most of you, well, the Johnson students currently in Greek might know some of these words. I didn't know these words. What are you wondering about right now? What is making you nervous? Is it to find out that you yourself are guilty of something on this list? 
Is it to find out if you make it in or out? Because if one of these things does or does not mention you or something you have done or something done to you, then maybe you can finally be certain about where you stand and where the person next to you stands in the eyes of God. We've got to stop it. (laughs) For your sake, for the sake of the church and the world, and for Christ's sake, we've got to stop making faith about a checklist to determine who is in and who is out. It's not ours to decide. Paul cares about the unity of the church, and he cares that people who claim to follow Jesus actually model the practices and priorities of Christ. Here's the English. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, men who engage in illicit sex, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So Paul gave a similar list in the chapter before this, uh, but he added a couple words. Uh, There are a couple words in here that people seem to want to talk about most. Uh, I don't know what words you're focused on. I'm really concerned about the swindlers. Paul adds a couple words that have complicated translations. This word male prostitutes, malakoi, it's kind of the term for the effeminate. It uses the word soft ones. So like you would describe a shirt being soft. It's generally referred to as the lesser or the lower or the passive male in a sexual relationship. Uh, Possibly it's prostitution like we think of it. Male pederasty, this relationship between men and boys was a common practice. It's hard to know exactly. And then there's this men who engage in illicit sex. Arsenikoitai, is that fine? No, it was bad, it was bad, okay. Um, it's interesting, this is a word explicit or exclusively to Paul. This is only the second time this word appears in scripture. Uh, the next time is in 1 Timothy. You can see the different translations that people have, uh, have tried to use with this word, but again, we, don't, we, don't, we have a hard time knowing what this word actually means. Uh, it, it might be homosexuality, likely it is. But even if it does translate to male homosexuality, we have to remember that this is likely not the same way as our our understanding of homosexuality. Male sexuality, particularly in this time, um, male sexual acts in the ancient world, uh, had some similar but also different meanings. Uh, A lot, even Paul's terms here, have to do with the active versus passive partners. And Paul is a good first century Jewish man, and he's echoing the purity codes in Leviticus, Leviticus 18 and 20. This wasn't like a public service announcement for a brand new sexual ethic, okay? These are Levitical laws. Uh, Caleb gave me um, an article this week that was really hard to read, thank you, um, by a a scholar named Ruth Mazokaras, it's from the uh, Oxford University Press. The title of this uh, article was Active, Passive, Acts, Passions, Greek and Roman Sexualities. (laughs) And what she says is that articles, scholarly work, is coming out fast and furiously about these topics. But here's what she says. She says, the theoretical sophistication that the study of sexualities in ancient Greece and Rome has acquired makes a familiarity with this field necessary 
to anyone who studies or teaches the history of sexuality in other times or places. When all we have are texts that were, after all, not composed in order to answer the questions we would like to ask, the discourse may seem more unified, but it is entirely possible that opinions among the ancient Greeks and Romans about sexuality were as varied and as vehement, vehement, is that Greek too? It's probably Greek, yeah. (laughs) As the opinions of scholars today. Here's the question I have. If Paul was writing this list today, I wonder how this list would be different or the same. Paul's list makes more sense in light of the verses following it. Your your Bible may have the heading uh, titled, Flee from Sexual Immorality, or Avoid Sexual Sin. And you know, we've not done a great job as the church, but also greater society, of making the connection between sexuality and spirituality. Which is interesting because they have a lot in common, actually. Both are about knowing self. Both are about knowing God. Both are about knowing another human. Both are about identity and longing and desire. And for a long time, there has been this tendency to divorce the two, to divorce spirituality and sexuality. And like all divorces, it's been a painful separation. And things were divided up. And Christians got to keep God and the world got to keep sex. And in the next few verses, I actually think Paul brings the two together. Paul begins responding to a series of Corinthian slogans, sayings they had about sex and sexuality. And it's kind of hard to know what is Paul's word and what the Corinthian slogan is. There aren't quotation marks in ancient Greek, so the translators kind of have to decide what is a quote and what is Paul. But we think it looks something like this. Verse 12 through 14. The Corinthians would say, all things are permitted for me. Paul says, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permitted for me. Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. But Paul would say, the body is meant not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God will destroy both one and the other. And God will raise the Lord and will also raise us by his power. As we saw before, the Corinthians had it in their mind that I'm free in Christ. I'm free to do whatever I want without consideration of anyone else. And there seemed to be this Greek phrase, food for the stomach, stomach for the food, which understands humanity as simply a collection of physical needs, doesn't it? You're hungry, there's food. You're tired, there's sleep. And sex was no different. So when a man was hungry, he would go to a prostitute saying, eh, food for the stomach. I mean, and Paul challenges this, asking questions like, isn't there more of a connection? Isn't there a deeper wholeness when it comes to sex and our bodies? This is what he says in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them a member of a prostitute? Never. 
Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one with her? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun sexual immorality. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. One author talks about how provocative of language this is. A temple was a holy place. A temple is where the gods lived. A temple is a place where heaven and earth met. The writer specifically uses this image to challenge them with the idea that a human isn't just a collection of urges and needs, but is a being in whom God resides. He's trying to elevate their thinking, to change their perspective, to open their eyes to a higher view of what it means to be human. He's asking them to consider that there's more to life than the next fix. I mean, this, this food for the stomach thing, in reference to sex, it carries kind of like a hopelessness, doesn't it? Like, mm, only human, food for the stomach, just how it is. Like humans aren't actually capable of restraint. It's a voice that asks, are we all really just animals here? And in the same way, we can so easily veer towards an opposite but equally destructive route, which denies anything physical. It suppresses the idea that sexuality makes us human. It's pretending that we're all just angels. We know that denying and stuffing and repressing our sexuality will never work because it's a failure to acknowledge something so central to being a human being. This is where so much of the struggle of the purity culture movement comes in. So angels or animals, which is it? Which are we? Animals have a physical body but no spirit. And angels are a spirit without a body. And both ways seem destructive for us because God made us human. You know that phrase, well, only human. It can carry with it both a sense of despair and also a great relief, can it? I mean, being human isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's what God intended. How could we be anything else? So what then does it mean to be fully human? There's a good question. Not should, should Christians sue people or not. Not does Paul hate gay people. What does it mean to be fully human? What is it that makes you come alive? Is it laughing or dancing or crying or hugging or creating art? What is it? What postures and priorities and practices lead to the health and flourishing of our bodies and our spirits? This is what the incarnation is all about. God becoming fully human to show us what a good and beautiful thing it is to be us. This should be good news, not bad news. That these bodies are the places where the Holy Spirit lives and acts in the world. Some questions that came up for me and our teaching team this week. What does it mean to be fully human? 
What would it mean if we viewed our bodies and sexuality as an inherently good thing and something capable of being a representation of a temple, the home of God? When the world looks to Jesus' people, to Christians, what does our view of the body, of sex, of sexuality communicate about who God is and what it means to be in Christ? What does it mean to honor God with my sexuality? What does it mean to honor the image of God in others with our sexuality? What does it mean to honor our community with our sexuality? We always believe that good teachings leave us with more questions than answers. We said this in our study of the book of the prophet Jeremiah, that this is a story. The story of God is one to be used as a plowshare rather than a sword. But a plowshare does have to rip up the ground in order for growth to be possible. I had Caleb and a couple others read over this teaching before I delivered it. This is what Caleb said. He said, our prayer, however we read this, is that 1 Corinthians 6 would be a plowshare, that we would grow by reading it because as a community, we seek the shalom for everyone that says, your body and my body are the temple of God, the image of God. And regardless of how we've used this text or had this text used against us, may we find healing in this community, the collection of saints, Paul says at the beginning of this chapter, a healing that it is in your body and it is in this body that God choose, chooses to reside within. May you know your worth, your goodness. May you know the kingdom that is yours if you seek Christ crucified. May each one of us be seen and heard and known by each other and by God. And because of this, may it change what we know about being in Christ and about being fully human.